0: As we begin today, I want to start with a quick poll. If you can hear me okay, would you raise your hand? If you can't hear me very well, would you raise your hand? My mic feels a little low, but I can can switch to this one if you want me to. Who wants me to switch to this microphone? Okay, all right, the, the, the no hands have it. I will talk louder for the few that did raise your hands. Um, I am from Louisiana, and so we know how to raise our voice. Uh, and Charles Spurgeon used to preach without a microphone, so I can handle it. Um, so here we are. Exodus chapter 12. We're continuing our study through the book of Exodus as we get now to the Passover, to the final of the plagues, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. Uh, One of the things that marks us here at the church is we're expository teachers. What that means is the majority of time we're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let Him speak to us. that is our hope. And so as we now come to Exodus chapter 12, that's exactly what we hope to do. And you may wonder, but why are we in Exodus 12? It's Easter. Okay, did you not look at the calendar? Did you not think about this? What are you doing? Well, as I was talking to my wife this weekend, she pointed this out in the Gospels. I've not seen this before, but in Matthew chapter 26, verse 3, 4, and 5, Uh, the uh, Jewish officials are trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. That's their plan. They're trying to figure it out. So they come together, and they're like, hey, we've got to do something about this guy. We've got to hand him over to be crucified. The chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. But here was their plan, verse 5. Here's what they said, quote, but not during the festival. The festival they were talking about was The Passover. Not during the Passover, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Their plan was, we've got to make sure and get on the other side of the Passover because everybody's coming to Jerusalem and it's going to get crazy, so we need to wait. But God had a different plan. God had a different timing. Timing. He wanted to make sure that as the events transpired here in the next few chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, that the weekend that Jesus was killed, buried, and raised was the very Passover weekend. It did not wait for the next week. Because God wanted to clearly, inexplicably, and forever tie together the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with the great Passover feast from Exodus 12. Why did God want to link those two events together? That is our question today as we then turn to Exodus chapter 12. What can we learn about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in this chapter? Again, this is the 10th of the plagues here uh, against Egypt, God's judgment against Egypt. We looked last week at all ten of them. Blood, frogs coming out of beds, coming out of kneading bowls. There are lots of frogs. Gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And then finally, the death of the firstborn predicted in chapter 11. We get a preview of what was to come. Chapter 11, God tells Moses, Moses, this is going to be it. After this, Pharaoh's going to listen and let my people go. It's finally going to happen. There's going to be the death of every firstborn in Egypt But Israel would somehow be kept safe. And this final plague would be different from the other nine. It would be set apart from the other nine for four different reasons. The reason why we zoom in on this one plague and not the others is because of how different it is. First, its success was announced beforehand. The other nine plagues were probationary. God knew that Pharaoh would not listen. But this one, its success was predicted, promised, prophesied. It's going to work. After this, my people would be let go. This 10th plague would succeed where the others had failed. Second, the other reason why it's different, that Moses and Aaron were used as mediators for the other nine to usher in and mediate these other nine plagues. But on this one, God alone would act. There was no further mediator. God would step in and he would do the work. This is what he says in verse 4 of chapter 11. I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. God is now stepping in, and He is going to finish the work that He promised and finally deliver His people. Third reason why it's different, it's given its own lengthy introduction in chapter 11. All the other plagues happened one after the next, but chapter 11 gets a long intro for what is about to come. It makes us pause. It's a break in the narrative to prepare us for what's coming. It's like there's about to be a new beginning for God's people, and that's exactly what the Passover would be, a new beginning for a new people. Chapter 12, verse 2, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year. The fourth reason why it's different is that the Israelites would be kept safe from this plague by something new. After the third plague, God had provided them safety if they would go to the land of Goshen. And then plagues four through nine wouldn't touch them. It was still sunny there. There were no gnats. There were no frogs. They were safe. But in this plague, they would need something else to be shielded from God's judgment that was passing through Egypt. Those very instructions of safety are now what we turn our attention to in chapter 12. What was God up to? What did he tell his people? And what do we see from it here in chapter 12? As we look through it, I want, there's three things I want us to, to see in this chapter. First, I want us to see the specificity needed. That's a tongue twister. I'm going to try not say it too much. Specificity needed. Second, we'll see a substitute offered. And third, we will see success expected. Those are three kind of mile markers we're walking through. Specificity needed, a substitute offered, and success expected. God is giving His instructions now to Moses and Aaron in chapter 12, and He's letting them know what they need to do for this plague to not fall on the people of Israel. And God goes through a very specific list of things they need to do in verses 1-11. through I I want you to hear what God tells them that they need to do. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look now, we'll read through verse 11. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's family. One animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. you are to keep it until the 14th day of this month, then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I mean, God gets specific here. He tells them not only the menu, but tells them the attire. Here's the dress code for the feast. And you hear almost in every verse, there's a new thing that he lists. He tells them when to select the lamb. In verse 3, on the 10th day of the month, you go out, get it on this day. He tells them when to select it. He tells them how many households are needed. Verse 4, he said, when you get that, make sure you get one animal per family. But verse 4, if the household's too small, get your nearest neighbor and combine with them. Get your community groups together and you guys get a meal then together. Be sure to share it. So You can imagine, again, I want you as you hear these specifics, place yourselves in the shoes of the Israelites or in the sandals of the Israelites. You hear that you've got to go to your nearest neighbor. You're taking a measuring tape out there like, okay, which one's closer? If I'm supposed to go to my nearest neighbor, which ones am I supposed to go to? Do I have enough for one family? Do do we have too, too much? Do we need to combine? You can imagine the meetings of the mothers and the fathers getting together, trying to figure out how much do we need? Is it going to be too much? God was incredibly specific here. And he told us that we had to get the animal and apportion it according to what each will eat. Well, Betty, you've got a 17-year-old boy. Do you know how much he eats? He's going to take four lambs by himself. How do we do this? Incredible specifics here. Not only when to select it or how many households, but what kind of animal it is to be in verse 5. It has to be unblemished. It has to be one year old. It can come from either the sheep or the goats. And so you can imagine, again, if you're the one sent out to inspect and find the sheep, you don't want to just go and find the animal. You're inspecting this thing looking under all around the fur. Is there any spot? Is there any blemish? Any defect? It's up to you whether or not you get a good lamb. If you get a bad one, we don't even want to think about what happens if you get a bad one. God is specific. Not only what kind of animal, but when to prepare the lamb for sacrifice. Verse 6, on the 14th day. On this day it's to be prepared. Tenth day you select it. 14th day, then you prepare it to be killed, to be slaughtered at twilight. And he tells them what to do then when it's blood in verse 7. Take it and then paint it on your doorpost, on your lintel there, on the entrance of the door. Put the blood there on each side and across the top. That and that alone is where he's supposed to apply the blood. Tells them then when to eat it in verse 8. Eat it at night. Tells them what to do with its meat, roasting it over an open fire. So I guess this is where the the origination for the Christmas song came from. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, uh, following the pattern here of a Passover lamb roasted over an open fire. Gives them the specific instruction, don't boil it, don't eat it raw. If you have any leftover, he tells them what to do with the leftovers. No Tupperware is needed. Burn it all the next day. That's what you do with anything that's left. And then he tells them what to wear in verse 11. We'll get to that later on. But you hear how specific God cares about this meal. Why? Why is God so precise here? Well, friends, precision, specificity, and perfection, we see, are necessary for the sacrifice to be accepted. This instruction for a perfect sacrifice to be found runs right through not just Exodus 12, but through the rest of the sacrificial system. We see it over and over and over again, the, the importance of finding an unblemished sacrifice It then doesn't end, though, in the Old Testament as that thread continues to run right through into the Gospels as we see Jesus then proclaimed as our perfect, spotless sacrifice. And so just a spoiler alert, everything in Exodus 12 is a big, flashing neon sign to Jesus. All of it. I don't know if maybe you're like me. I grew up in the church, but the Old Testament was just like interesting stories. You you hear it in coloring pages, hear it in children's church. But I like to just go to the New Testament. That's like the more like applicable stuff. Old Testament was just like weird at times, didn't understand it, but some cool stories every now and then. Get to Judges. Boy, man, middle school boy Caleb loved the book of Judges. It's crazy. But what we see actually is the whole Old Testament isn't disjointed and just given for our entertainment. The whole Old Testament is pointing to and bearing witness about Jesus. This is how Jesus read the Old Testament. It's what he said in John chapter 5, Luke chapter 24. And we see perhaps no clearer chapter than this than Exodus 12. Again, as the need for finding a perfect blemish, uh, unblemished sacrifice runs through the Old Testament sacrificial system and into Jesus. On that day, when he was inspected by Pilate almost 2,000 years ago, here was Pilate's conclusion in John 19:6. I find no guilt in him. There is no blemish on this one. He stands spotless. And so Jesus was prepared. sacrifice, Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53 says. Do you know what day Jesus was prepared to be crucified? It was the 14th day of Passover. The exact day that God had told them specifically when to prepare the lamb was the day when Jesus was prepared for his sacrifice. And his sacrifice, like we see the sacrifice in Exodus 12, the lamb was given to be sufficient for all those that it was provided for. The exact number of people it would suffice for. And what we see is that Jesus is the sacrifice that's sufficient for all those that hide under his blood. And he's not needed one every household, but he is sufficient for the sins of the world. And this image of Jesus being the unblemished lamb continues on into 1 Peter chapter 1. As he says, it's the precious blood of Christ that we are redeemed. Like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Paul just cuts right to the heart of it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And he said, Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. For Exodus chapter 12 is giving us categories for what Jesus will do for each one of us. And all the instruction, all the specificity, all the apparent micromanagement of God was to highlight this reality that all of it was meant to point us to a greater Passover lamb. It was meant to make us feel the weight of finding a perfect sacrifice because the imperfect can die for their own sins, but only the perfect can bear the sins of another. Specifics were needed. But then we get to not just the specificities, but we see that a substitute is then offered. Once the lamb has been chosen, then a substitute was offered. We look at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 12. God tells them after laying out the instructions, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Friends, who would die that night in Egypt? What we see is that if no one did anything, the firstborn male in every house in Egypt, Egyptian, Israelite alike, would die. Why? Because God was judging here not just the people of Egypt, but He was judging everyone there. We see that not only had the Egyptians sinned, the Israelites had as well. And they deserve death just as much as the Egyptians. They deserve death just as much as each one of us do. Because we see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That death is the result of sin. It's the just punishment that we deserve. God warned Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, Don't disobey me or you will certainly die. They didn't listen. Thanks, Adam. Look in the New Testament, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Friends, this wasn't just a plague against Egypt. This was one against Israel as well. They deserved death just as much as Egypt did, just as much as as each of us. So what was God going to do to save them? How could they be saved? Well, not by doing nothing. God didn't just say, okay, Israel, you're my boys. Egypt, here's my judgment. But he also didn't do, again, like we said, what he had done so far, saying, hey, if you go to Goshen, you'll be safe. Go to this other land, you'll be safe, and then my judgment will pass over here. There was something different here. And what what God wasn't going to do was say, hey, I'm going to judge each one of you individually, weigh your hearts, and see which one of you are good, you can live, whichever ones are bad, you'll then receive death. This is what the Egyptians had in their category. For entering into the afterlife and experiencing life. One of their gods who guarded the afterlife was the god Ammit. And Ammit, in the process of entering into the afterlife and the Egyptian deities, was understood this final test to enter into life would go through what they called the weighing of the heart. They'd have scales out. And would they be able to be worthy to pass into life? It was up to them and how they lived. On one scale, their heart. The other scale was a feather, which represented something Egyptian. Which one was going to weigh? If the heart was heavy, then Ahmet would devour their heart and they would die forever. If their heart was light, they had been good. They could enter the afterlife. Is that what God was going to do here? Go house to house, weigh the hearts, see who deserved death, who deserved life. No, because again, we've seen everyone deserve death. So how could they be saved? Friends, what we see is their salvation was dependent On a lamb and what they did with its blood. We see that they had to take then not just the sacrifice of this lamb, but they had to then take the blood and apply it to their doorpost. They had to put it outside, applying it to the doorpost, and death would visit every house that night in Egypt. God's judgment would fall throughout Egypt. And death would be in every house. I think sometimes I I know I can think of the Passover and go, oh, the Egyptians experienced death, Israelites were saved and experienced life. Friends, in every house that night, someone died. It was either the firstborn male or it was a lamb in its place. It was either the child or substitute. And this idea of substitution is a thread that runs throughout the Bible. From the very beginning in Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God covered them with animal skins, it says. That's the first sacrifice we see. Animals are killed. God covers their shame with that sacrifice. This animal dies instead of them. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is, is called and um, told to sacrifice his son right before he does. A ram appears in the thicket. God tells him to stop. And the ram is killed in the place of Isaac. He's a substitute. Here at the Passover, we see the firstborn child is saved and the lamb dies in his place. Leviticus 16 gets us to the day of atonement, the center point of the sacrificial system. One day a year in which an animal was killed for the sins of Israel to reconcile a holy God back to a a sinful people. And it's all building to its culmination of substitution in John chapter 1 verse 29 that we read at the very beginning of the service. That Jesus Christ is the Lamb that will take away the sins of the world. That He is the substitute that is offered in our place to take away our sin that we deserve. He takes it on Himself. We are given life. And substitution is at the very heart of salvation. Either we will die because of our sin or another will take our place. Those are the options. And what saved the people in Israel? Here in chapter 12, what well, God says in verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God does not pull every single one of them out individually. Weigh their hearts and look at them to see if they deserve life. He doesn't pull each family out and weigh the scales of going, have you done enough? God doesn't see them at all. What does he see? He sees the blood, and he passes over. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, D.A. Carson, kind of gives us this picture, um, I think is so helpful in understanding this night. He puts it this way. He said, imagine two Jewish men on this Passover night. Call them Bob and Jim. Very Hebrew names. (laughs) I I say that, and I I just realized I met a Bob last week who's Jewish um, in Winter Park, so I guess that does work. Um, Anyway... Bob and Jim. Now, Bob is just hearing about what Moses has told him. Hey, God's told us, here's what we have to do. Here are the instructions. Go and do it. You'll be fine. Bob hears it, and Bob starts getting scared. Bob has seen the nine plagues so far. He has seen God's power, and he knows God's going to do what he said he's going to do. Judgment is going to pass through Egypt. And he's worried that he's going to mess something up. He's worried that maybe he won't be good enough to be able to put the blood up in just the right way. Maybe he's going to fail somewhere that's going to cause death to enter into his house. And he's shaking going through the meal with his family. Terrifies. he then takes the blood and puts it above his post, hoping that he's done enough as he applies the blood to his door. He goes in that night to go to sleep, but he can't sleep a wink. Up all night, worried, afraid. Is death going to come into their house? He begins to hear the screams around the city. He begins to be even more anxious that it's about to be his own. Jim, on the other hand, isn't worried at all. Jim trusts God. Jim is like the man of faith. They're going to write a biography about him in a few years. Uh, he's, he's just loving God and all that he has done. And he hears what Moses said. And he's like, oh, this is it, man. We're getting free. God said it. It's going to happen. I'll do the blood. We'll do the meal. God is going to protect us. He's going to deliver us. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Finally, he's come to make good on his promise to our forefathers. Let me put the blood up there and let me go to sleep and wake up in the morning a free man. That's Jim. Very different from Bob. That night, the angel of the Lord passes through Egypt. Which one of those two men had their firstborn son, Killed that night? Well, the answer is neither. And friends, here's the point that D.A. Carson draws out there is that for the people in Israel, just as it is for us, what saves us is not the amount of our faith or the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith. It is the blood of the Lamb applied to our hearts, and we hide behind it, knowing that we are not worthy, knowing that we do not deserve life, but we actually deserve death because of our active rebellion against a holy God. And yet God, in His grace, has come to make a way and offer a substitute to die in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, bearing the sins that I committed against God, and absorbing the wrath that was meant for me in my place drinking that cup down to the very last drop so that he can then say it is finished and the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him and we are given life as death then passes over us because God does not look at me he does not see me and my failures or my successes he sees the blood and he passes over friends how would they be saved they believed God, and they hid themselves behind the blood of the Lamb. It was not their worth. It was not their effort. It was not their goodness. But whether or not they trusted God, and if the blood had been applied to their doorposts. Friends, it's no different for us. If you're here, and you're not a Christian, you, you said, hey, I'm going to come to Easter. Why not? Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe somebody gave you cookies, and you felt bad, so you said, okay, I'll come. Regardless, however you're here, it, whatever kind of perception you have of Christianity, there's lots of ways which Christianity gets kind of put out there and portrayed. Often, particularly in movies and TV shows, Christians are the ones that don't like to have fun. We do all the not fun stuff as Christians. Very loud about very particular things. We begin to be known more about what they're against than what they're for. But friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you hear the message of the Bible and the message of the gospel. is primarily about one man, Jesus Christ and His love for you and the way in which He then came and entered into this world and walked through a world of suffering and sorrow and pain and He died a death in your place and He's offering you His life and that He then died as a substitute for you if you would turn and trust and believe in Him. You don't have to earn it. God isn't going to wait until you get to heaven face to face with Him and go, all right, let's weigh your heart. It's going to be whether or not we have trusted in Him if the blood of the Lamb has been applied to our hearts. Again, that's an image of just meaning, do we believe and trust Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin? Will you trust God today? That nagging feeling of guilt in your heart is warning you about the judgment that you're going to face one day as you stand before your Creator. And no one else will stand beside you. It is you and the One who made you. Friends, don't ignore that feeling today. Because God has offered a way for you to be saved today, for you to be reconciled today, for that guilt and that sin to be dealt with forever and forgiveness to be extended to you by the substitute that took your place. Will you trust God today and hide behind the blood of the Lamb? And if you do, then when He passes before you on that day of judgment, He will see the blood and He will pass over you. I love one hymn writer put it this way, because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. A substitute has been offered. Friends, the final thing we see here in Exodus chapter 12 is not just a specificity needed or a substitute that offered. but We see that success is expected. And we get in verses 14 to 28, and God gives Moses instructions for the uh, festival of unleavened bread. We're not going to get into that today. He's going to bring this back around in Leviticus. If we ever go through Leviticus, we'll talk about it then. Piece of unleavened bread gives instructions there. Moses then in verse 21 takes God's instructions and goes to Israel and lets them know, Israel, here's what you're supposed to do. So recounts it in verses 21 to 23. Then verse 24 talks about the importance of telling it to your children. And I love this. We're not going to camp much on this today. But I love this, that God tells them, hey, when, when your children come and ask you, what's this feast about? What's the meal about? He says, here, parents, respond then to your children and tell them what the Passover is. Tell them about what I have done for you. And we see the importance and the way that God has designed for parents to be the one to disciple their children. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't the high priest. It was the parents. Again, that's a whole other sermon that we're going to have to go past, but it's great there in 24 through 28. But then we get to verse 29. And everything that had been talked about happens. In verse 29, we see the promise played out. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. This judgment was all-encompassing. Reaching the highest and lowest. And every firstborn of the livestock. Verse 30. During the night Pharaoh got up. He along with all his officials and all the Egyptians. And there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt. Because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night. And he said, get out immediately from among my people. Both you and the Israelites. And go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you have asked, and leave. And also bless me. This is the story of the Exodus. God makes good on what he had promised to free his people. It's not simply a story about the death of a sacrifice, but about the deliverance of a people. God purchased his people by the blood of the lamb. They were his. And now in verses 31 and 32, success was accomplished The people were freed. Pharaoh says, go. But what I want us to see here is that success was not only accomplished, it was also expected. We see this because of two different reasons. One, because of what God had promised. He's been saying since chapter 4 that after the death of the firstborn, my people will be free. Chapter 5, God puts it this way, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. I'm going to deliver you. God promised it. Success was expected. But it was expected not only because of what God had promised, but because also what the people were wearing. I want to go back to what we read a little bit earlier in verse 11. Wasn't that an odd note to read? All the specifics about roasting and fire and eating and blood. And then you get to verse 11, and what does God say? Hey, also, by the way, be sure to wear chacos on your feet, take your staff in your hand, eat in a hurry, don't take your time. It's the Lord's Passover. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why is He telling them to wear sandals, to have their staff, to eat it in a hurry? I went to uh, Italy in college on a mission trip. One of the things I loved about Italy is their lives revolved around the meal, around the table. And boy, their meals would last for hours. And there was seven courses, just one after the next. Like, I don't know where this is coming from, but here it is again. Hours, they would revolve around the table. But God says, hey, don't be like the Italians. Eat it in a hurry. I think that's what verse 11 says. (laughs) Eat it in a hurry. Get it and go. Wear the sandals, have your staff. What does that mean? Well, friends, it's important to note, uh, as we see uh, here in verse 11, again, they didn't have Nikes. They didn't have Columbia hiking boots. They had sandals. The sandals were worn whenever you were getting ready to go somewhere. When you're getting ready for travel. Your staff you would have when you're going on a trip or going somewhere out be able to have not only to help you but also for protection and to be able to eat it in a hurry to get it and to go. God is telling the people before the plague comes hey, be ready because when you wake up in the morning you're going to be a free people and we've got a place to go. Whenever the people were dressed ready for a journey, they were still slaves. There had been nothing that had happened yet except for Pharaoh saying no to nine of the plagues and hearing about the 10th one and saying, hey, that ain't going to happen. But God says, listen, there is success that is coming because I'm the one that's about to step in here. So make sure, get your sandals, get your staff, eat in a hurry because we have got a place to be. The Passover, friends, was a pilgrim meal for a pilgrim people who were about to be delivered from slavery and led to the promised land. And friends, we are no different. We have also been redeemed from spiritual slavery, and we are now a pilgrim people being led to a promised land in heaven. So friends, grab your staffs. Strap up your chacos and your sandals. Eat in a hurry because we are no longer bound in slavery, but we are bound for the promised land. We've been set free and we are almost home. Success is expected, not just for the people of Israel, but for us. Maybe you go, Kayla, how in the world can you say that we can expect success? You don't know what's going on in my life. How can we expect success when so much around us is broken? Surrounded by disease and disability, tears, pain, tragedy, and death. How can you expect success when so much of my life feels like failure? Friends, the answer to that question is that our Passover lamb was taken from the cross and he was laid in his tomb. But three days later, he walked out of it. Death was unable to keep a grip on this lamb and he stood toe to toe with our enemy and he defeated him. So yes, there are funerals that we will have to attend here. Yes, there are phone calls in which we will hear a doctor on the, other water, on the other line say things like cancer. And yes, there are tears that we will shed that we will be unable to count. But because of what Jesus did on that first Easter, we can be confident that those things may follow us all the way up into the gates of heaven, but they will not be able to follow us in. And on that day, Jesus will wipe away our final tear. He will make death no more than just a memory, and He will make everything new. We can expect success because the victory has already been won. That victory has also been given to you. And friends, the victory is yours because the battle was the Lord's. And so Jesus is our true and better Passover lamb who takes away our sin, redeems us from our slavery, and leads us home to a land that he has promised to give us. He fulfills the specific instructions that were needed. He's the great substitute that has been offered. And he has secured the success of his people. So what is left for us to do? Well, friends, we hide behind the blood not applied to our doorposts. We hide behind the blood that's applied to our hearts in faith. And we stand behind that blood like the Israelites. We stand in safety. We stand in confidence. And we stand in expectation. That because death has been crushed under our lamb, that death will then pass over us. He will see the blood applied. And we can know that He will pass over us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the grace in which You've shown us to offer us Your Son. God, to give us a way to be saved, to be reconciled back to You. To be able to see that there is, Lord, a way for our sin to be dealt with and for us to be reconciled back to a holy God and for You showing us grace to be able to see how that can happen as your blood is applied to our hearts. God, would we see the beauty and the glory of Jesus as our true and better Passover lamb, sacrificed in our place, raised then to walk in new life, and his blood is applied to us, and his victory is also given to us. God, would we see, would we savor, our substitute, our Savior, our Passover lamb,